Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about The Last Dance. We're going to talk about Francis S. Collins, share some current news, and Brian and I are going to play a game. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good, or as Brian loves to say each and every Wednesday, it is, of course, what day, Brian? Hump day! There it is. I just finally, I saw a commercial... Someone was like resharing it, and I thought, well, I, I have to give props to Brian then because this is uh, the most excited you are to ever announce a day during the week, it seems. Okay. <laughs> that is <You> true. <laughs> a couple of things. Find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. We not only post articles there, but you can send us messages with suggestions for the show. You can also find us Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get podcasts, subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, like all that stuff. It helps us out a whole ton. And we're super, super grateful for all of you who have already done that. I put about, what, this, this is 37 links here in this first segment here, Brian? <laughs> There's a lot of them. It's too many, and we I, we don't have any time to spend on any one of them. But they were just really interesting stories slash headlines that I wanted to at least, I kind of wanted to start today just sharing some like current news, which we don't often do. Yeah. And then uh, if one of them really gets traction on Facebook, maybe we'll revisit it later in the week. So why don't you go ahead and hit us with the first one? Yeah, the first one's a, a sad story. And, and the, what struck me in reading all of these that you put on here is that in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, that kind of takes all the air out of every newscast, you know, so you don't even some of these are really big stories. And as I was reading through them going, oh, I ne- didn't hear that one. I didn't know right, that one. Right. So uh, the first one's out of Louisville. And it's a hard story. It says Louisville police to change policies after Brianna Taylor killed by a cop in her home. Yeah. And the story's tragic. Brianna Taylor, 26. She was killed in March. When police entered her home searching for illegal drugs, uh, they started shooting after Taylor's boyfriend shot at them first, and she was killed. What makes this story so um, controversial or just ugly is that they were executing a a search warrant in which they don't have to knock, right? Like right. so, they don't knock. So these people are in their home, and the police barge in. And the boyfriend starts shooting because he's thinking they're going to get robbed here. And the police return fire and she was killed in it. Uh, and so that that has staged a bunch of protests in Louisville. And it has changed how Louisville is doing their no knock warrants. To be honest with you, I didn't even know this. You know, these are I'm constantly learning things. here. I didn't know this was a thing, but you could understand how something like that could go really badly. And uh, it just ends in a tragic, tragic way. Well, and apparently and I. I'm not entirely sure this is accurate. It's been hard to find out the right information, but it was the wrong home, right? And, oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Kenneth Walker, the boyfriend, is in custody. He has no criminal history for drugs or violence. He's licensed to carry. And it turns out that the suspects were actually already in jail. So, Oh, no. The story, yeah, the story is all sorts of crazy. I, I imagine that's one that maybe we'll have to – Unpack yeah. a little bit later in the week. Just Gosh, that's absolutely hard. heartbreaking. Another story that's heartbreaking for a completely different reason. This is in my home state of Michigan. Uh, Michigan declares an emergency after two dams collapse, threatening a town with up to nine feet of flooding. Have you seen this one at all? I heard about it. I did. I didn't see these videos. Our videos are crazy. Yeah. And again, we don't have time to spend a lot of time on any of these. I would encourage you to go look it up, at least watch the video. I was showing my wife some photos and she was like audibly gasping. Like it's re- it's really, really frightening and people are evacuating and you see images of like buildings all the way up to the shingles just absolutely flooded i mean it is gosh 
I mean, it, I mean, I'm I'm biased because this is my home state, but please, please, please be praying for Michigan and uh, that specific area for sure. Is that, I know Michigan's big. Is that anywhere remotely near where you grew up, or is that a different part of the state? It's a different part. Yeah, it's probably. I mean, it's a couple of hours. It's a little, uh, if okay. I'm remembering this correctly, northwest of Saginaw, but I mean, still in the like lower half of Michigan, though. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I feel this every time something happens in New Jersey. It's yeah, it, totally. Whether South Jersey or North Jersey, I'm always like, oh, so. Uh, this next story, uh, at a, it's, uh, touches COVID-19. A doctor who delayed retirement to fight the pandemic at low-income hospital has died of COVID-19. Uh, a doctor, uh, pulmonologist James Mahoney, reportedly worked his day shifts in the intensive care unit at the University Hospital of Brooklyn, which, like many hospitals in New York, initially lacked the medical equipment needed to treat the onslaught of coronavirus patients. He was 62 He had the option after serving for 40 years as a physician to retire, but instead treated his patients until, unfortunately, he contracted the disease in April 27th, uh, and he later passed away from it. So just, you know, uh, you can look at, I have CNN on the background, and you just look at the numbers climb, and you just, it's hard to put faces to it, and then you read stories like this, and you're reminded that with every number is a person, and the tragedy of someone who could have retired, he could have let other people worry about this, uh, stepping in and taking on in a low income hospital to try to help people only to contract the virus and die himself is just uh, a real tragedy. And he's somebody who deserves to be honored. I was going to say almost in my mind, the definition of a hero like that to me, I I read that story and was like weirdly affected by it. All right. So let's uh, let's share a couple of good news stories here. Uh, Walmart hires almost a quarter million workers as sales soar. So they hired what's the number here? Two hundred and thirty five thousand new staffers to keep up with demand. It's uh, you know, it's the largest retail chain. I imagine some people maybe are less than thrilled because it is still Walmart. You know, it's still big box, Mm -hmm. but in a in a time where everyone seems to be struggling to find work or keep work that at the very least I thought was at least a a glimmer of some good news. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I think you put this one in here. Just you timed it for me here. I did. Exactly. Uh, Caroline couple turns in $1 million bounty. They found in the middle of the road. That's nuts. It's nuts. It says like, like others throughout the county, Emily Shantz and her family have spent a lot of time inside their Caroline County home lately because of the pandemic. So on Saturday, she, her husband, and their children decided to get out of the house and head toward the short pump area for what they expected to be an uneventful ride. It turned out to be a million-dollar experience. So to make a long story short, they come across a bag. They pick up the bag and another one nearby, put them in the trunk, continued on their ride, when they get home, they realize that the bag, they thought they were picking up trash. And they realize that instead of trash, it is all filled with money. It's filled with cash. And they notified a deputy that they go to church with. And it was determined that it totaled close to $1 million. And they said it speaks volumes for the high character people that they are. And uh, so, yeah, that is high character. I got to be honest. Like, I know that I've do- I've gone on the hill of I wouldn't turn it in. For some reason, amount of money that big, I think I would turn it in. And I know that makes no logical sense whatsoever, but I'm going with that. <laughs> well, it may not make logical sense, but it is good to hear, though, on a Christian talk show, Pastor Brian, <laughs> that apparently there is a dollar amount too big that you wouldn't keep to your stuff. Okay, we got, we got less than a minute. I'm going to skip over. I'll mention it real briefly. A guy at a Waffle House shot somebody else for not wearing a mask, oh, which that's no good. just to say it out loud, don't do that. 
that's not good. I'd love for you to read this last one, though. I mean, this one's so fascinating to me. All right. Let me click on it because I thought you were about to do it. It's from earthlymission.com. Recently discovered dinosaur mummy is so well preserved it even has the skin and guts intact. What? Yeah. Look at these pictures. That's unbelievable. It says we have a dinosaur as it would have been. Scientists are hailing it as the best preserved dinosaur specimen ever discovered. You can't even see its bones. They remain covered by skin and armor. Uh-huh. Uh, the fossilized nodosaur is more than 110 years, million years old, found accidentally by miners in Canada. Patterns are still visible. Uh, this is crazy. It is being referred to as the dinosaur mummy, and it is unbelievable when you see these pictures. Okay, so just to say it out loud, we obviously didn't get to cover any of those, but we've posted all of them over at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We would love to know what stood out to you. If you ever have suggestions for stories or articles, shoot us a message. We would love to include that in the show. And coming up next, uh, some news that I'm really excited to share about Francis S. Collins, who just won the Templeton Prize. We'll talk about why that's significant coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I said that more aggressively than I feel like I typically do. Well, welcome, welcome back. Yeah. That's yeah, My excitement comes across as aggression, which is not not good for preaching at all. <laughs> I guess uh, it's worked out for other people over the decades. Anywho, find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles, even articles we don't talk about. I posted one earlier today about a guy that created a YouTube channel specifically to teach people how to do stuff around the house because I his dad that. abandoned him when he was a kid and he didn't want kids to not know how to just a beautiful story. We won't talk about it anymore on the show, but that's where you can send us messages. If you have ideas for the show, you can also find us Twitter and Instagram at common good talk and wherever it is, you get your podcast. Some of you maybe don't realize, but subscribing rating and reviewing to that stuff helps us out way more than maybe you know. So if you have a spare moment doing all of that and then sharing it with a friend helps us out a ton. And I saw a couple of people posting this article from religionnews.com. Francis Collins wins Templeton prize. And I asked you a little bit during the break, you know who Francis Collins is, right? I do. He's a, he's a brilliant geneticist and the director of the national Institute of health. He's also like a pretty devout Christ follower and someone that I've watched for a while. I think he spoke at a catalyst conference years ago and oh, wow. uh, okay. for a long time, he was the head of the Human Genome Project, and he mapped successfully sequenced three billion DNA letters that composed the Human Genetic Instruction Book. <laughs> like he, just a, I don't know what it is about seeing people who are that much more brilliant than I could ever dream of being, also saying, "Yeah, I still conclude that the God of the Bible is the way to go." Like there's just something, I don't know, strangely comforting about that. I guess. And uh, I wanted to, since I knew a lot of you maybe not, you know, would be familiar with who he was or his work. He did an interview. I think this was probably seven or eight years ago that was sort of talking a little bit about his faith. If you want to get like a little bit of a primer on who he is and where he comes from. So I thought we'd play just a couple of minutes from that interview. And then with whatever time we have left, Brian Fromm and I will respond. Why? You were not a believer early in your life. Why? It was the way I was raised. I was raised in this uh, remarkable environment by a drama professor, father, and a playwright mother. 
surrounded by theater, music, the arts. Uh, they were doing the 60s thing, except it wasn't quite the 60s yet. And I was exposed to all kinds of fascinating ways to learn about life and the world and uh, ideas. Uh, but faith was not really on the list of things that were talked about. It wasn't that faith was put down or considered uh, inappropriate for other people. It just didn't sort of enter the conversation in my childhood. Did it exist in your mind as a question? Oh, I had glimmers of something, some longing outside of myself, some sense that maybe there was a God up there that I might be able to reach out to. What brought you as an adult then to faith? Well, first, as an adult, I walked very far away from faith. I went from being sort of well, vaguely interested, but not really, uh, to becoming an atheist. Uh, as a scientist studying physical chemistry, quantum mechanics, I became convinced that everything about the universe could be described by equations. So what changed that for you? Well, I changed my life plan from physical science to medicine. And when I went to medical school, the ideas about death and dying, which had been rather hypothetical, became very real. You can't be in that environment, sitting at the bedside of people who are facing the end of their lives without having it affect you. Did you set out to find God? or to find that there was no God. I set out to prove that my atheist position was correct. I set out to try to find out what really were the rigorous arguments that I assumed were there that would rule out any possibility of God for a thinking person. You must have found many of them. <laughs> I found some. Many of them were ones I had cooked up in my own mind. But the harder I looked at them, the flimsier they were. All of us human beings have a sense that there is such a thing as right and there's such a thing as wrong. What a curious thing. Where does that come from? If you were looking for evidence of a God who cares about human beings, not just a God who started the universe in motion and then wandered off somewhere else, wouldn't this be an interesting place to find him? Basically as something written within our hearts, universally in humankind, making us different from other species, and calling us to be good and holy, pointing us as a signpost, if you will, towards something outside ourselves that is much more good and much more holy than we can imagine. Did you have at some point a born-again experience? When people talked to me about born-again, I didn't know what they were really referring to when I was growing up. But yes, I did have a moment where I became a believer. I had struggled for two years with this debate within myself, gradually coming to the conclusion that belief in God was the most plausible of the choices, but that it couldn't be proved. And after many months of struggling with whether to make that leap uh, on a beautiful fall day, hiking in the Northwest with my mind a little more clear than usual because there were not the usual distractions, I felt I could no longer resist and I became a believer that day uh, in the sunshine and the shadow of the Cascade Mountains. Okay, Brian, so I know that you were already familiar with Francis Collins, but anything about that interview stand out to you or anything about this article with him kind of winning this uh, high honor? I did. From the interview, you know, for somebody this brilliant, and like you said, in an age where uh, increasingly it feels like people want to say you either have to choose faith or science, right? Like, um, for somebody like him, a brilliant scientist to come to faith, uh, like you said, is is encouraging. But th to hear him say that in the beginning, he set out to prove that God didn't exist. Like he right. was like, 
no, I'm going into this to help people believe that faith in God is is not scientifically viable, and you're kind of putting your brain away. Uh, he was raised an atheist. Uh, in the article, uh, he even says uh, that he was raised to believe uh, that, that faith in God wasn't uh, within the bounds of intellectualism. Like, you couldn't right. intellectually believe in God. And so to know that he went into his profession trying to show people that and then uh he he came and and god you know revealed himself and, and won him over if you that's a weird way to put it but but that he came to faith is such an unbelievable story i'm with you if people don't know of francis collins you've got to youtube um you've got to google him and read his story because it's fascinating well and he's written some stuff too i know that we, we don't have a lot of time but he wrote a book in 2006 called the language of god which right. is phenomenal. Apparently, I didn't realize this till reading the religion news article. That book is what led him and his wife, who's also a genetic counselor, to establish BioLogos Foundation in 2007, which we've referenced on the show before. And you can learn more at right. BioLogos.org. That is a really, really great starting point. If you're looking to maybe find some harmony between science and Christianity, which I know for a lot of people, that might be a scandalous proposition. But right. he is someone who I think has been a pioneer actually in having some of those conversations, which is, I don't know. I think, I think you said it right on that. It's, it's, it's needed now more than ever for us to be able to help build some of those bridges rather than kind of continue the divide that, you know, widens the chasm between us. All right, yeah, well, he's, done, he's done work with viruses and vaccines. Like if now, if not now, when, right, go read about Francis Collins. Yep. That's true. Coming up next, something that uh, Brian and I have not done in a long time, we're going to play a little game. Two games, really. The first is antidepressant or Tolkien character. And the <laughs> second is going to be Taylor Swift or Lamentation. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, ho neighbors. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. There you will see our illustrated animated mask-wearing faces and all the articles that we reference on the show are posted there, even stuff we don't talk about on the show. We would love for you to engage in dialogue there. There's been a number of almost heated discussions, which I think has been helpful. You can also send us a message if you have ideas for future shows or topics or interviews. Plus, you can find us Instagram and Twitter at CommonGoodTalk, 1160hope.com slash TheCommonGood, and wherever it is you get your podcasts, if you wouldn't mind, just take just taking 36 seconds out of your day to subscribe, rate, and review. All of that does really out, help us out a whole lot. And we did this. It's maybe even been a year, Brian. It's been a yeah. long, long time. And you have no idea. I, so I literally put in the rundown two games. So That's right. you learned as I was teeing up this segment what these games were. So you do not know the answers to them. Two games we're going to play. The first is Taylor Swift lyric or verse from Lamentations. All right. And the second one will be antidepressant or Tolkien. So <laughs> let's do let's do Taylor Swift or Lamentations first. And uh, producer is ready with the sound effects. Are you ready to play? Hey, as a uh, card carrying Swifty, I'm ready to do this. Let's do this. Oh, boy. I wish you hadn't said that. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Number one for Taylor Swift or Lamentation. Number one. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. Man, Taylor Swift. Mm. Oh. 
This is so much more fun with the sound effects. We're going to have to go a little faster than that, by the way, Brian Fromm. we got a lot okay, of sorry. Through. All right, way, I got the game. I, I should also mention these are in the message translation, so they'll feel a little more modern. All right, number two. Oh, you got me with Peterson. Okay. All right. Have you ever seen anything like this? Ever seen pain like my pain? Seen what he did to me? That's Taylor Swift. Uh, you're a pastor is that right brian a pastor of the bible the christian bible all right number three it rains when you're here and it rains when you're gone lamentations oh Oh, for three man this is is turning into a real uh wiffle ball sesh for you isn't it it really is my back hurts number four (laughs) Uh, long were the nights when my days once revolved around you. Around you. Oh, Taylor Swift. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Way to> go. <laughs> okay, we got a lot here. Number five: walls of insincerity, shifting eyes, and vacancy vanished when I saw your face. Lamentations. Boy, I hope we're keeping score here because I would I'm, love to. I'm one for five. One I'm one for five. For five. <laughs> yeah, but you're definitely yeah. keeping track. Number six in the game of Taylor Swift or Lamentations, I weep, weep buckets of tears, and not a soul within miles around cares. Lamentations. <laughs> no, 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 no. That one was Lamentations. <laughs> it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> okay. Keith is just enjoying this. <laughs> uh, he just wants to knock you down a couple of pegs. All right, number seven. I gave up on life altogether. I've forgotten what the good life is like. Is it just I've forgotten what the good life is like? That's what you said? No, I gave up on life altogether. I've forgotten what the good life is like. Taylor Swift. Boy, oh boy. You are not great at this game. How many more do we have? We got a lot to go. Uh, number eight. I'm two for seven. <laughs> Did you have to do this? I was thinking that you could be trusted. Oh, that's got to be Taylor Swift. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Number nine, like shadows in a faded light. Oh, we're invisible. Uh, that sounds like Lamentations. <laughs> oh, boy. All right, number 10. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Lamentations. It's actually, it's actually both. That was a trick question. Uh, <laughs> uh, number 11, we've been to hell and back. We've nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. Rivers of tears pour from my eyes. That's got to be Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is a game of Taylor Swift or Lamentation Verse, and Brian Fromm is not doing great. Number 12. I, I have a third of them correct exactly at the moment. Uh, see the vultures circling dark clouds. Love's a fragile little flame. It could burn out. Taylor Swift. There you go. <laughs> Number 13. You'll find out what it's like to get drunk and wake up with nothing. Taylor Swift. <laughs> You're so confident with that one, too. Number 14. Time turns flames to embers. Lamentations. Uh, last but not least of this game, number 15, these walls that they put up to hold us back will fall down. The time will come for us to finally win, and we'll sing hallelujah. We'll sing hallelujah. I'm going with my first thought. Lamentations. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, that was more fun than I thought it was going to be. We don't have a lot of time for the second game, Brian, but we're going to go for it. So that game we just played was Taylor Swift or Lamentations. The second game is Antidepressants or Tolkien. Are you ready to play? No, but I'll do it. Let's do it. Okay. Endronax. Antidepressant. Endronax, uh, sold under the brand name Endronax, among others, is a drug of the norepinephrine. I can't read it. The font's too small. Yeah, you got it right. Ah. All right. Haldir, H-A-L-D-I-R. Tolkien. Let's find out. You are you are correct. Two for two. <laughs> two for two. All right. Uh, Orofin, O-R-O-P-H-I-N. Tolkien. Correct. <laughs> Come on. You're, you're way better at things that aren't the Bible. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> All right. Two minutes left. Uh, Sir Dan, C-I-R-D-A-N. Antidepressant. I was waiting for the sound effect. Uh, no, you're incorrect. Oh. Okay. <laughs> There he is. <laughs> He's still there. Uh, Nardil, N-A-R-D-I-L. That's got to be Tolkien. You think so? Yeah. Incorrect. Symbalta, <laughs> uh, C-Y-M-B-A-L-T-A. Tolkien or antidepressant? Antidepressant. You think so? Not not now that you said you think so, but yes, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> you, you are correct, sir. <laughs> I got it right. You did get it right. All right, minute and a half left. Uh, Elronin, E-L-R-O-N-O-N. Sounds like a character of Tolkien. Okay, you are false. Oh. <laughs> are we keeping mm-hmm. track of this one? I was on I have four right so far. I have four right. I don't know how many you've done, but I've got four. Uh, Narmacil, N-A-R-M-A-C-I-L. Tolkien or antidepressant? Antidepressant. Antidepressant. Let's find out. Incorrect. You are not correct. That was the oh, wrong he- sound effect. Has <laughs> <laughs> everyone been day drinking today? What's happening? Uh, <laughs> Sildenafil. S-I-L-D-E-N-A-F-I-L. Tolkien or antidepressant? Antidepressant. Correct. Oh, I got my five. <laughs> you got your five. All right, we got 30 seconds left. We'll do two more. Uh, okay. Lovox, L-U-V-O-X. Tolkien or antidepressant? Tolkien. Uh, incorrect. <laughs> All right, your last chance to redeem yourself. I'm right, ready? Let's Sintamil, do it. S-I-N-T-A-M-I-L. Tolkien or antidepressant? Tolkien. I'm going to wait for the sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if that translated to good radio or not, but I sure had a... That was really fun, and I was not good at it at all. I'm impressed how much fun you had for how poorly you did, which uh, I think that makes you a good sport. You win a prize anyway, Brian. Way to go. Thank you. uh, I I hope somebody listening along at home played as well. Coming up next, I want to talk a little bit more about Jordan and the last dance and uh, maybe take a little bit different angle on the perspective of his life. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Oh, hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place, mostly at our houses, but other places like Facebook, 
Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. We would also encourage you to review and like and share that page. That's sort of like the main engine by which we share what we're talking about. You can also send us messages if you have suggestions or ideas for future shows. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get your podcast. I want to talk a little bit more about The Last Dance, specifically a post that my buddy Brian made about some of like the undergirding character and perspective of Jordan. But before we go into that, Brian's going to tell you a little bit about what we're doing at the station. Well, I did just learn you have other friends named Brian. So there you go. Oh, yeah. Sorry. He was he was before you, too. Oh, man. Well, let me share some good news after that hard news for me. Uh, (laughs) During the coronavirus pandemic, we do know that uh, unfortunately, many businesses have had to close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are many of you out there who own businesses that are trying to stay open and serve the public as best you can. So if that's you, if you own or run a business that's still open, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. That's all one word. 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form, and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. It's totally free. No catch. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. I mean, you know I'm going to say it, but that was that was like poetry, Brian. Really. Uh, I appreciate that. Special. Okay. I do. So, I've been practicing. So. Yeah, I can it's tell. Good. All right, so uh, Pastor Brian Lowry, a buddy of mine, actually met him years and years ago. And when I came to community, learned that a number of people there were also friends with him. Brilliant mind, brilliant preacher, brilliant thinker. He's just someone who's like social media presence. You know, you know that person that their social media presence is like consistently either a breath of fresh air or something like really thought provoking and compelling. Yes. He's just both of them. I think he's got just an incredible sense of seeing the world he wrote uh, about the last dance and it's a little long at least for facebook but if you'll let me i'd love to just read it and get your response you just finished the last dance i just started it but uh you're much more an avid sports fan than i am and i would love to know some of your thoughts regarding his thoughts so let me just read it this is from brian lowry and then brian Fromm will respond he says this post is long and perhaps needlessly so but i wanted to write it so i did let's start here Not every kid in the small Illinois town I grew up in, but just about every kid, couldn't help surrendering to the gravitational pull of Michael Jordan. He came, he saw, he conquered us all. I have to admit, I was a bit meh about it all until the first championship run. The reason why was a simple one. Despite marveling at the highlights I saw here and there, particularly the dunk contest of 88, I pretty much only concerned myself with how the Cardinals were doing. But then that first championship run, The buzz was far too great not to tune in, so my dad and I did just that when the playoffs began. Watching those finals determined the next eight years or so of my life. I decided I would watch every single game from there on, and I pretty much did. And goodness, the memories. That first run was magical. The move. Paxton catching fire. Jordan weeping and hugging the trophy. But the second run was even more magical for me because I'd watched the whole season. Every game. I was invested and the finals that year were special and dangerous. When Clyde Drexler fouled out in one of the, uh, the games in the finals, I was so excited. I jumped up and pumped my fist right into the light fixture of our living room stealing fan. <laughs> Dad had to take me to the, into the ER for stitches. I asked the medical staff to give me updates about the game while they did their work. After everything had been sewn up, the doctors looked me in the eyes and said, next time you watch a basketball game, maybe wear a baseball mitt. 
the end of the third run, the run against the Suns, I was on the road in a church van on the way to a youth conference in Tennessee. My friend Chad and I had watched every game that year, too, so we begged the youth minister to find the game on the radio. The reception was so patchy, the broadcast so static-riddled, that we had to press our ears against the speakers, piecing together what was happening after hearing every other sentence by the announcers. We heard enough to know Paxton had done it again, that a third championship had come to Chicago. When I arrived back home from the conference, my dad was there in our van waiting for me. On the back seat, uh, seat there was a collector's edition of the Chicago Tribune, the Sun-Times, and USA Today. And besides them all, one of those gaudy championship t-shirts that was so popular back then. We rushed home and watched the game together, which my dad had taped for me on the VCR. Early one morning late that summer, my dad snuck into my room to tell me he'd scored us tickets to see Jordan and the Bulls play. I admit it. I cried. The next day, Jordan retired to go play baseball, and I admit it. I cried. We went to the game, of course, a Friday night against the Pistons, which I feel attacked personally, but that's okay. It was fun, <laughs> but I was missing. But it was missing Jordan. And then after a year and a half away, the return. My friends and I all went to Katie's house to watch the game against the Pacers. And I admit it. I cried. And then the next three championship runs, all of them so special. And my dad did indeed manage to score tickets for one game during that first season of the second three-peat. I got to see Jordan play during that second three-peat stretch. I got to see Jordan play from 1991 to 1998. One of the greatest sources of joy for me in life was watching Jordan and the Bulls play. And folks, I even love watching them play in 94 and 95. The other day, just after the close of The Last Dance, I tweeted this little two-parter. I said, I'm fairly certain I'm in the minority on this one, but The Last Dance was more jarring than fun for me. Ten hours of being confronted with how much I love someone who I do not want to be like in any way, shape, or form. Don't get me wrong, because I'm no fool. I'd heard the rumors, read the books, watched the Hall of Fame speech, but to see it, to have it confirmed... To see the latent anger still ready to lurch and degrade and discard, hand to heart, it was hard for me to finish it. It's the least like tweet I've had in a while, which isn't saying much. It's not like I'm a prolific, gifted Twitter presence with an enormous audience, but still worth noting. And beyond that, you wouldn't believe the amount of text or emails I received telling me I was, quote, wrong because the series was, quote, awesome, that it was nothing more than, quote, great fun, and that I need to, quote, relax a bit. The worst text, even though... I don't think they were sent with vicious intent, told me I was an idiot. I didn't already know the kind of person Jordan was. I debated tweeting it, uh, tweeting what I tweeted, but went for it anyway, and I probably shouldn't have. What gets me is the charge of idiot, the allegation that I should have long known that Jordan was a jerk. The change of idiocy bothers me. The charge of idiocy bothers me because, well, the second part of the tweet is me literally acknowledging I'd long known Jordan was cruel. But the charge also bothers me because I could have been clearer about what was so jarring and downright depressing for me about The Last Dance. Lack of clarity is almost always on the writer. Here's something I decided to do long before The Last Dance came along. Stop cheering for Michael Jordan. And not because I don't think he's the greatest basketball player ever, because he is by a mile, by many, many miles. And I haven't stopped cheering because the run that they had in the 90s really wasn't all that special for me and my dad. It was, and it still is. I stopped cheering because I just don't have it in me to feed the man who feeds a beast in his belly that continues to eat at him and to eat himself alive before our very eyes. During those magical runs of the 90s, I did hear bits and pieces about the seedier side of Jordan, but it was mostly about gambling, which was a world I just didn't understand and thus didn't care too much about, and grudges. I'd heard about contractual divisiveness, but that too was a world I just didn't understand or care too much about. But in the years since those magical runs, I've read the books, 
books that go much further and darker than the one by Bob Green that I read during the sophomore year of high school and a sunny little number that leaves you half believing Jordan should be in ministry. I've read the countless articles. I've listened to his interviews, few and far between. I've heard the testimonies of teammates. I've watched that ugly Hall of Fame speech in which Jordan took the stage with one goal to viciously lay low his enemies and doubters. And the fact that his speech unfolded in the warmth of David Robinson's made it all made it even worse, uglier. And now the last dance, there are moments where I was overwhelmed with joy seeing footage and highlights I hadn't seen for years, but each thrilling segment was interrupted by seething and sad commentary by Jordan. Rumors swirled for years that the 20 and 30 year old man acted like a petulant six year old, giddily berating and bullying with the tepid defense of the ends justify the means. And when all this is said and done, it's all right because it teased excellence from everyone around him, including himself. The rumors have been confirmed for us in the years since. But that's uh, but what's most distressing is that the last dance shows us that the, this nearly 60 year old man unrelentingly chooses to remain a petulant six-year-old, giddily berating and bullying those who are living and those who have passed, nursing grudges that were either real or absurdly imagined. And as Dan Patrick has pointed out, Jordan doesn't hold a grudge. He strangles it. The last dance encourages us to cheer on the greatest, the one who was and chooses to remain the smallest. I was stunned while watching the last dance, and I wanted to cheer for Jordan again, but I held the line because I know and the last dance helped me know all the more, and I just don't have it in me to cheer on bullies, be they athletes, politicians, pastors, or the guy or gal just down the street. But Brian, come on, what can we expect of folks not led along by what's leading us along? A fair point, and one I do absolutely keep in mind, but my nodding to this truth doesn't afford me the freedom to cheer on that which is unacceptable and devastating. I don't have it in me to cheer on bullies. And what's more, I don't have it in me to marvel at that which is killing a man. Perhaps the most powerful moment in the documentary for me was the moment most powerful for you, the moment when Jordan once again found himself pushing back against the allegations of his being a berater and a bully, trotting out the tired notion that one must do whatever one must do to win. But he broke in the middle of his defense. He broke and the levees of his eyes broke too. He called for a break when he broke because he was on the verge of weeping because he knows. I don't think we have time to get into the rest of it, but I would just love to know and. 15 seconds or less. How do you, how do you respond to a commentary like this? Yeah, it's deep. I think that uh, we all struggle in watching it because we've heard these things about Jordan and he clearly was on some levels a bully. He, he motivated by anger and demeaning. He knew he was better than everybody. It's the struggle we all do with as sports fans, right? It's, are we rooting? We're really just rooting for these guys to win, and we don't really want to know what they're like. My favorite team growing up ever is the 1986 Mets that ended up being full of criminals and really bad guys. I had posters of them on my room wall as a kid, and uh, really what we're cheering for is just winning. And I think when we get older, we realize, oh, maybe we shouldn't be holding these people up and admiring them. So I get what this guy is saying, because watching The Last Dance, you didn't come away you came away understanding Jordan's leadership, understanding what drove him, but also understanding that he wasn't really well liked by his teammates. Uh, and while the best player ever, it probably wasn't all that enjoyable at times. And so I totally get what this guy's saying. That's a good word, man. And uh, we've posted this over on our Facebook page. You can read the entire thing in its fullness. And just to say it out loud, Brian Lowry, thank you for your wisdom and your insights in this issue and so many others. I really appreciate it. Coming up next, here's the headline. Churches obsessed with their right to reopen are missing the point. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett. 
and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and Thrive and Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. Coming up this hour, religious organizations received a lot of stimulus money last month. And how are churches going to look different after the coronavirus? You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, uh, The Common Good Talk. Uh, You can find us online, 1160hope.com. And as always, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, We are grateful to the many of you who have done that and who continue to listen. Just go ahead and share it with a friend. And uh, we thank you in advance for that. All right, Ian, the PPP loans that went out, you and I talked about them uh, kind of near the beginning of uh, of COVID-19, of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and there was all that talk about uh, are churches and religious organizations allowed to take that loan? Uh, and then beyond that, what would be the result should they take that loan? And so some of the statistics are in. Let me read these for us. And uh, would love to get uh, your response. This is out of Newsweek. Religious organizations across the U.S. have received at least $7.3 billion in federal rescue package loans, uh, with evangelical leaders tied to President Donald Trump and mega church churches tied to scandals pulling in some of the largest payouts. Treasury Department data released Monday shows that religious organizations ranging from nearly 10,000 Catholic churches to hundreds of Jewish groups received 88,411 Paycheck Protection Program loans since the program began April 3rd. Several churches affiliated with Donald Trump supporters and close associates amassed at least $17.3 million. Included among the top loan recipients were uh, Pastor Robert Jeffers uh, and uh, Paula White. Uh, I saw somewhere Willow and... um, Life Church and some others. And so, Ian, here's my question. And again, you and I talked about this way in the beginning and uh, laying all cards on the table. Uh, our church did take a loan from this, and I believe you guys did not uh, when we had, I think I'm right about that, when we had this discussion earlier. Uh, so let me ask this question two ways. One, uh, now that you see the numbers, is there anything wrong with churches having done this or unethical? Or two, if it's not unethical, how does it look, do you think? This, is, again, is a Newsweek article, so take either of those that you want. Yeah, so we posted the Newsweek article on our Facebook page a couple hours ago, and David Cook, who's uh, we've mentioned a couple of times on the show, That's right. I'd, like, I'd like to know your response to his comment. 
He said, we did not apply for this very reason, I think pertaining to uh, the headline. He says, while absolutely legal, we checked with multiple sources and the optics are bad. Our people were faithful and we are in better shape than last year and kept all employees on the payroll. However, while we chose not to take part, it is not illegal. And if the number of employees is below the stated limit, they have the right to apply. Newsweek makes it seem nefarious and that is just not true. So there's a bunch kind of packed in there. One is sort of the um, perceived sensationalizing from Newsweek, which may or may not be true. Uh, Two, part of what you were alluding to, uh, the difference between legal and moral or legal and ethical. He's saying, yeah, I mean, technically, if you meet the requirements, why not go for it? And then third, again, you sort of alluded to it, some of the optics of it. He's saying it didn't, you know, it wouldn't feel fair to our people because we've not only been okay, we're doing better financially now than we were this time last year. So we've actually chosen not to. Uh, yeah, I'd love to know as someone like you're an interesting perspective there. You're also the lead pastor there. So you, right. you're much closer to these discussions than, than maybe a lot of people, you know, realize what, what was it like navigating some of those, some of those nuances? It's interesting to look back because at the time it wasn't, this is kind of how my mind works sometimes. It was like, man, uh, we could struggle financially. There's this availability out there for specifically for payroll. Uh, and I jumped at it and I didn't even think twice about other people who wouldn't. And then once we started having those conversations, I was like, oh, that does make a lot of sense. Hmm. Uh, I think David Cook right there wrote it really, really well that uh, is not nefarious, but uh, he says that's why his church chose not to do it for the optics of it. Uh, and again, I just wasn't aware that you, that these people were going to get, you could get this much money. I mean, it's a Joyce Myers ministry. We've got five to $10 million, uh, some church, some bigger churches that we know, $2 million. It just, uh, uh, is pretty, uh, wild. So I, I think now once you see these numbers and I do think Newsweek kind of went after it a little bit here to try to, um, you know, it does look bad when you put all together. Uh, I would say not illegal, not even unethical. It was out there and it was available. The, the administration made it clear that it was available to religious organizations. Uh, when you see some of these numbers, I do think it looks bad because, you know, churches are uh, have uh, and pastors have specific uh, tax breaks uh, that already make some people upset. And so when you start seeing churches and relig- religious organizations with this much money, I could certainly understand uh, some people uh, especially non-church related people, but also church related people, I can understand why people would be upset with this. So what do you do about that then? Because you bring up taxation, which is a really, really important component in this discussion. Is that right for churches to be receiving governmental aid uh, given their unique tax position? Yeah, man, that's a hard one because again, I never have given, I never gave two thoughts about it when we when we were requesting the loan, cause I, you know, all the emails going around like, Hey, this is available. They're, they're, uh, they're encouraging churches, but, um, and I'm also, a, I, this might sound self-serving. I believe in the tax breaks that churches get. Like, I think those are done for a specific purpose. Um, but with that said, uh, if I were oh, even a churchgoer, I almost said, if I were not a churchgoer, even a churchgoer, and you see some of the money floating around in the church world, uh, I think it's it's completely legitimate to call into question 
a lot of it. So can you remind us why did your church, or if you were part of the discussions, why you guys chose in the beginning not to? Like I could see people even like myself looking back, like, okay, maybe the conversation would be different if I could go back in time. But you guys were ahead of this and said, we're not going to do it. Do you remember why? What were the reasons? Uh, I cannot, but I'd like to ask you a question, though. You mentioned that you believe in the tax breaks in general that churches and clergy get. Could you speak a little bit more to why you believe that? Uh, you know, I'm going to sound uneducated here. They were always, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the tax breaks were put into place uh, from the beginning as nonprofit organizations. Uh because people saw the value that a church added and churches weren't making a ton of money. And, and so taxes, taxes were uh, going to be a big burden to the churches. Uh, and, and I think that was the heart behind them. Am I right about that? You could call, you could call my bluff on that one if I'm wrong on that one, but that seemed to be the heart behind it in the beginning. But now that you've got, especially some mega churches with a lot of more money, I, you know, I think people are really calling to that question, but I believe that was the reason behind the tax breaks from the beginning. Does that sound right? Um, I yeah, I think that's part of it. I think there's like a there's a free speech component to it. There's the free exercise of religion aspect. There, it's more it's more complicated than that, but that's that's certainly part of it for sure. Yep, yep. Hey, I I do think it's super complicated, and I do think um, again, I saw I went back and looked at David Cook's reply. I think he nailed it, man. I think he is uh, pretty good that that. Not uh, not unethical, not illegal, but it does look kind of bad for some people. And uh, I think we're just going to have to own that at the moment. Yeah. Uh, sure. Remembering that it was it was offered. And uh, but now to look back on it, we had quite the uh, I remember vigorous discussion about this in on the front end of it. And so now to see these numbers, I think is really interesting. Julie Royce wrote about it, too. Uh, we put those articles up at our Facebook uh, page the common good radio show well, we're glad that you're joining us on this wednesday afternoon you're listening to the common good am 1160 welcome back to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life alongside ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. glad to have you with us on this wednesday afternoon but we are thrilled to be joined again by someone we like to refer to as a friend of the show uh ed stetzer ed thank you so much for joining us yet again Wow. I, 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 I didn't know I was elevated to friend of the show status. I mean, I, I think of you guys as like fun guys. So I'm glad Thank to be a friend of the show. Well, we only say that because not only have we had you on, but we, we do discuss a lot of your articles. Okay, <laughs> so, no, no, no. okay good. Well, I have listened some. And I did know, actually, I did listen when you used the phrase friend of the show. And I thought, well, how, how special? I mean, I, I thought maybe you guys should like maybe buy me lunch or something if we're friends. There you go. It's, it's good. Yeah, the, the mark of a true we, friend we, is that one half isn't aware that they're a friend. Right. That is, that is true. We need a little DFR to find the relationship, but I'm glad to be your friend. And I, I, I love you guys. You're good enough. You're smart enough. And people like you. That's hey. Thanks. let's close it right there. We're good. Uh, well, Ed, we are grateful for you joining us. Uh, for people who don't know you or who haven't heard you before, could you just introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, so I'm kind of a motivational speaker who lives in a van down by the river, and I, uh, I, I lead the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center, and um, I am a professor at Wheaton College, and I I write some and I speak some. Well, I used to I used to speak at things called events when we had them, but we don't have those anymore. <laughs> yes. So now I'm pretty much a writer, I guess. 
It is weird that events is going to start to feel like an antiquated term. That's bizarre to think about. Um, it is strange. So I've actually, as someone who like, you know, would do a conference pretty regularly, 42, 42 events have canceled. So it is kind of fascinating. Wow. I love to go out and, you know, do what the writer of Hebrews says, provoke God's people to love and good deeds. But, yeah. uh, but you know, important ministry going on. Churches have really stepped up and stepped out. Yeah. And it's been neat to see the Lord at work. Okay. So Ed, you wrote what I honestly think is a brilliant three-part blog entitled Patriotism and the Church. And we, honestly, I'd be fine if we spent an hour talking about this, but could you <laughs> just briefly, again, there's three parts. We talked about at least two of them last week, so people will be familiar. But would you talk to us a little bit about the hope for those three-part blogs and kind of maybe summarize what you were getting at? Yeah, the hope would be that I survived writing them and because it <laughs> makes people mad. Um, because here's the thing. So I am very, I mean, I'm pretty strongly patriotic. We just have a family tradition. We read the Declaration of Independence on Independence Day. We, uh, <laughs> when we, depending where we live, we've blown off a lot of fireworks. We, we go to Fourth yeah. of July, Independence Day parades. Uh, I love my country. Uh, and I, one of the reasons that I love my country is because it has done much good, but I also love my country that it wants to be uh, made better. And mm-hmm. so um, I, my, my concern is I think we need to be careful that, um, you know, the gospel transcends national borders and nationalism. The the Church of Jesus Christ should as well. And I, I wanted to make sure in these articles I wrote, it's kind of cautions around patriotism and worship. Because I've been in some services that kind of felt like we were, you know, worshiping America and mm-hmm. maybe not worshiping God. I want to I want to love my country. Now, by, by the way, I think that's important, too, because I don't think every country I think people should to the degree they can be proud of their country. I think you want to celebrate Independence Day in India and Independence Day in the Philippines. Um, but there's also, too, some places where you celebrating your country is a celebration of, 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 of something that's predominantly overwhelmingly evil. But I think ultimately uh, my country's promise that, you know, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, um, that I think that we still need to strive for that promise. So my, my concern was that we would rightly think about patriotism as a virtue and a value, but we would not confuse it and put God um, – Underneath that, we get, you know, it's not, it's not country and God, it's God, it's his kingdom. We're citizens of another kingdom and we can celebrate and make better the place where we live. That's yeah. good. And what would some red flags be for individuals and for churches that might not even realize it, but where they would go, oh, maybe we are falling into this. Maybe, you know, this is a struggle of ours. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think ultimately when you're um, finding yourself like my country right or wrong. I think my country right or wrong is not the kind of thing that a follower of Jesus says ever. I mean, ever. I think that's wrong and it's idolatrous. And I think that's the key. The question is, when does idolatry come in? People, um, when I, I want someone who walks into uh, my country, excuse me, my church in whatever country I am to say, this is not a nationalistic thing. This is a kingdom of God thing. And so if somebody shows up on maybe July 4th weekend worship and it feels, you know, strange to them from, from, you know, from wherever, from Thailand or, or from Brazil, I think ultimately we want people who are followers of Jesus or even people who are not followers of Jesus to know that our mission is bigger than this world. And then, you know, it's actually, it's a whole theological system called a two kingdoms. You know, we, we do live in this world and, uh, that doesn't mean an uncritical embrace of everything my country does, but it does mean in, in the case of the U.S., I think we have a country to be uh, proud of. Now, again, one of the reasons I'm proud of it is 
is that I, I actually can work to make it better and I can criticize it and not end up in a gulag. So that's a plus too. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, I think that's, that's the kind of thing you want to speak up on. I think that matters. It's interesting that you bring that up too. Cause I feel like I've seen a lot of that type of rhetoric online where someone says, why are you criticizing America? I thought you loved this country. And I thought, man, the stuff that I love the most, like a song or a sermon, I, w- I work on it. I craft it. I edit. I often have to delete stuff or, ask for feedback. And one of the things that you said in part one was that to be careful, we have to be theological. And I imagine a lot of people listening are like, well, I'm out. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a scholar. I don't know what it means to be <laughs> theological in this discussion. What would you, what would you say to that person? Yeah. And I, and I get that, but I would say that we don't have the luxury when mm-hmm. something, particularly something that grabs, uh, grabs the affection of our heart, everything that grabs the affection of our heart, we need to think theologically about because, mm-hmm. and it's not just that, it's patriotism, right? So that's obviously grabs the affection of our heart. But anything that we're drawn to can both be a blessing and then be misused. And I mm-hmm. think we'd be naive at best, reckless or worse, not to recognize that patriotism has been used by many scoundrels in many ways. I just wanted to use right. the word scoundrel on the show. It's good. Um, <laughs> I'm a pirate now. I love the word scoundrel. Um, but I would just say patriotism has been a protective shield against some things that really have allowed Christians not to function well as kingdom citizens. So, mm-hmm. so I think we've got to think through and say, all right, how do I think about these things biblically? So yes, you need to think, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're listening to the common good, you need, and that's why this show is, is a thoughtful show. This is not just whatever. You mm-hmm. need to think about how do I best uh, love my country and worship God, not confuse the two. How do I best love my country by working to make it better, by not pretending it doesn't have troubles in its history and struggles today, but to continue to work for the promise that was and still is America? Mm. Yeah. Uh, We have a lot of pastors who listen to this show, Ed, and I'm curious, uh, is this something you think we as pastors should be attacking from the pulpit, in conversation, all sorts of different ways? Maybe give us pastors just some ideas of how to get at this. Yeah. So I think ultimately to teach it carefully, because again, I think there is a generational shift. I think you guys are closer to my age. And if you maybe talk to our parents and grandparents, um, there was a sense that God and country was so closely tied. And, right. you know, there was a sense that people maybe maybe conflated those two things together. But the reality is God doesn't love countries. God loves people. He died. Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, not for our national whatever. I mean, America will not exist forever. Um, I mean, it just would be ahistorical to say that it was. No country has ever existed forever. So if that's the case, where's our ultimate loyalty? But what I would say is, I think ultimately to teach that, you have to be super careful because I'm not at all. I mean, again, this is where for me, I mean, I I, I wore you know I wore red, white, and blue, uh, you know, on <laughs> on July Fourth. I mean, it's I love my you know, and I, I live in Wheaton. Normally, you know, we normally have this crew this uh, parade. We don't have that this yeah. year, obviously. But but so what I would say is, and, and, and you know, you guys are gracious enough to cite my articles occasionally. You see my. I want this country to be the best country that it can be. And I work towards that and I speak up for it. I'm involved in political process and all kinds of other stuff. And I can also recognize that there are limitations to that. The kingdom that I'm a citizen of and you, you're a citizen and our listeners are a citizen of is not of this world. And our ultimate loyalty is needs to stay there. And that has ramifications that flow into our whole lives. For example, uh, you know, our politics can't come before our Christian commitment. Jesus is not coming back, you know, riding on a donkey or an elephant. He's not coming back flying on Air Force One. Mm-hmm. And when I when I take the time to 
measure that appropriately. Now, here's the thing. People say, well, why? No one's doing that. Well, I don't know about you. And I think the reason you guys maybe resonated with the articles is you've seen what I've seen. And it's like, wow, mm. that really felt like it went too far. And yeah. I think ultimately we need more God-centeredness and Christ-honoring worship. Uh, and and let's love, let's again, let's love our country. Let's honor our country. Let's even honor those who served our country. Yeah. And let's do so in a way that makes sure our ultimate allegiance is seen in this place called church. Awesome. Well, that other voice you hear is Ed Stetzer. Uh, he is has a lot of titles, but maybe his best title is friend of the show. So we're excited <laughs> that Ed is going to join us for another segment. Uh, stay with us uh, as we continue to be joined here by Ed Stetzer. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. And we are thrilled to continue to be joined uh, by Ed Stetzer. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. There it is. It's good <laughs> to stay. Uh, Ed, I wanted to jump in oh, here. Got, are there like, is everybody a friend of the show? Because that would make it less no, special. No, no, no. Of course oh, no. not. There's, no. There's some people listening right now who are mad because they didn't get that title. <laughs> okay, fair. That makes me happier. I feel like it's more special now. It's like a... Maybe an exclusive group. All right. I'm a friend yeah. of the show. Ed Stetzer, friend of the show. We'll be sending we'll you a Mark. bracelet next week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ed, I want to ask you this. About a month or two ago, we had John. We were still, you know, at the beginning stages of the coronavirus pandemic. And I believe um, the George Floyd murders had just ha- murder had just happened. And I'm just curious, kind of a broad question. Uh, you've written a lot about. Uh, what the church needed to be prepared for and what it needed to do. I'm just curious how you think the church has done and is doing right now. On issues of race in particular? Yeah, and the pandemic. Both yeah, of okay. these big yeah, things. Well, it's like it's 2020. You remember, you can't even barely remember, you know, 2020 started with impeachment and then we had our vote on impeachment and then we had, um, you know, the coronavirus and then the economic crash and then, uh, you know, racial unrest around issues of injustice. And then, uh, you know, it goes on and on. Anyway, what a crazy year. It's It's basically 1968. <laughs> When you add all that together, they had a the, they had a Hong Kong flu virus actually during that wow. year as well. So that's 1968. Remember the Jesus movement then started in 1969. So anyway, that's another story. I'm ready for a revival to break mm-hmm. out. Um, so the, let me say too, the New York Times had an article today, which I just responded to. Uh, I think they published it while we were talking, which I thought was unhelpful in its uh, framing and its title. Um, and basically they said, you know, that the churches have become a major point of spread. And I, I, I don't think the article even makes that case. There's 650 cases since the beginning of the pandemic among 3 million cases. I think churches have done well. I think churches have done cautiously. Those are beginning to maybe take steps to regather. I would say churches have showed uh, the love of Jesus, shared the love of Jesus in remarkable ways. So uh, there's always the outlier, irresponsible ones who, you know, want to get the, I don't know, rile people up. But, um, you know, I I think we've done well. Um, I I would say on regards to race, I think that a lot of that depends on kind of where people started already. So the church Mm -hmm. that I I serve uh, in the western suburbs here as teaching pastor, um, you know, High Point Church had already sort of, I mean, in January, we had a men's retreat with Eric Mason talk about, you know, racial relations, you know, cross, cross, uh, kind of kind of how we build racial, greater racial unity across racial divides. And so for people who are already having that conversation, I think it was just easy to step back into it. I think uh, Emma Green at The Atlantic wrote an article talking about how, how um, so many African-American evangelical pastors are now editing, doing the late night editing of all the statements of a lot of white evangelical pastors who, <laughs> and, and, and it's true. And, and what I yeah. would say is, 
I, I'm glad in my case, you know, I had the privilege of being part of a church that didn't have to like dust off an old Rolodex, but instead just were part of an ongoing conversation. Right. So, so I would say, you know, you know, James Meeks, who I, I don't know if he's a friend of the show, but he should be. He's a good guy. Um, <laughs> but James pastors uh, Salem Baptist Church in the city. He's on the board of Moody Bible Institute. Great, great uh, brother. Um, you know, he we did some conversations together uh, with some other pastors as well. And even actually part of the Faith Leaders March. And I think what he said to me was he'd never seen so many evangelical pastors want I just think in a way, this was different in some past issues and past moments. And I think people are trying to learn more. You know, the New York Times bestseller list is even the Christian bestsellers are now about um, questions of maybe history of, of, you know, racial injustice or how Christians could do better, which is quite the difference from the normal, you know, here's five ways to be happy and healthy kind of yeah. books that sometimes make those lists. So I think we're we're, we got a ways to go, but with thoughtful, and I listen to you guys, you know, with thoughtful stuff that comes from you helping us to think about that and from others, I, I think we're making good, good forward progress, a ways to go, but we're making some progress. Well, that means a lot, man. Thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm wondering as it pertains to a ways to go, you know, Brian and I are both pastors. So it's a question that we both get a lot like, hey, what's the plan? How are we proceeding? You know, I'm in a multi-site situation. So that even gets tricky with the various different sizes of our campuses. What, what do you predict for Illinois specifically? Because I know that Illinois has been the source of a lot of conversation around COVID and policy and whether or not churches should comply or whatnot. How do you how do you see the next, I don't know, half a year kind of playing out for the local church? Yeah, I think it's tricky. And again, I, I don't want to make news on your show accidentally, but, you know, I, we did talk to the governor governor last week and um, have some kind of conversations ongoing. I think that um, we've got to figure out how to, and you know, I think right now it's a great time to be a small church and it's a great time to be a church plant because mm -hmm. um, you have a lot more freedom that's there. But, um, you know, I just came back from California and the, I spoke at a, a church out there. I spoke, I mean, to a camera at a church out there, but, right. um, but the, uh, they're, they're moving backwards. So their churches that opened mm -hmm. a few weeks ago are now not. And what I would say is we got to get used to a kind of an up and down for a while, I think in terms of an accordion. And I don't know, you know, guys are, you guys are all pastors. And so, you know, it really depends on the size of your church. You know, it's right right now. Um, the, you know, the, the rule, the rules are no longer the rules. You know, churches, gov the governor has the day before the Supreme court actually ruled in favor of California restricting churches meeting uh, governor Pritzker moved the mandates to guidelines. So really there's no mm -hmm. rules for churches and people who are listening right now, but you have responsible pastors who are asking, okay, I, I, I want to protect our people. So right. the guidelines themselves are a little bit confusing because is it 50 people? Is it, you know, is it 25%, um, right. you know, and more. And what we heard on the call, the governor was a little bit, that's still in flux. Um, I would say that churches uh, probably after Labor Day, you're going to see some of the larger churches. I'm actually working with a group of the larger churches in and around Chicagoland. And many of us will, after Labor Day, begin to do something. It's not going to be, you know, the whole, I think everyone sort of wanted a grand opening and it's not a grand opening. It's a right, gradual right. regathering. Right. And I think ultimately following protocols, making sure we can keep one another safe, trying it for a month, seeing if anything happens, do it in another month, at least until 
we have a therapeutic or a vaccine. So, but what I would say is the church never closed. You guys, your churches didn't close. You've been doing good work, showing and sharing the love of Jesus. And uh, churches are holding together. I think in April, I don't know about you guys, but I I was freaked out in April. We didn't know. Uh, But then we got to May and things began to stabilize. And this is not good, you know, but this is a pandemic. So, we want to gather again. We will gather again and maybe take those baby steps. But one of the things we're finding is even in churches that reopen, uh, regather, people are not rushing back. Um, right, you right. know, some some churches, 20 percent, uh, even churches that states were not hard hit. So I think or not hard hit yet. It's still moving around. But I think that's the the tricky thing is, is you I mean, right now. The, the, the rule in Illinois is there's no technical rule, yeah. but we have pastors who really love. And this is one of the things we said, I said to the governor, um, you know, we we I, I actually know that he cares for the people of Illinois. He I mean, we yeah. would not be on the same page in a whole lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said to him, um, you know, we love our people, too. And yeah. we don't want to do anything, put our people in harm's way. And we just have to find ways to do this safely. And the church, I, I spoke at a, there's a television program called The Hour of Power. So I did The Hour of Power on Sunday morning. And then, but I went over to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, because uh, Brian Broderson, who leads that, he's Chuck Smith's successor. He's a student in our grad program and we're friends. And I got to see their last service and they have done amazing. They have parking lot, every other spot with a cone in it. So people park one space away from one another. They have zones and um, they no more than a hundred people in a room, but they have separated rooms with social distancing. They have gone to great lengths to keep people safe. And I I thank God for churches that are making those smart, wise decisions to open carefully and cautiously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ed, we uh, really enjoyed our time with you and it always goes so fast. So we'll love to have you on again. Again, that's Ed Stetzer. Uh, the Billy Graham chair friend of, of church. The, friend of the show. Friend of the, the show. show. Working on there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at Wheaton College, all sorts of other things. A legitimate friend of the show. So, Ed, we know you're a busy guy. We really do appreciate you taking the time, and we'd love to have you on again sometime. Sounds good. Good to talk to you guys. Thanks for your work. You too, like man. Have a great day. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of peaked with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. I gotta be honest, I like, I like getting back into segments with Hey Friends. It just feels like we're a, feels like we're family, feels like we're friends, a community. Hey friends. I'm not paying super close attention right now, but I think you've done it for every segment this show. Uh-oh. No, now I'm in a rut. I gotta go back and listen. No, 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 okay. no, no, no. No, it, no, that's not, it's not a rut if it's warm and genuine. Nah, so if I come back. 
if I come back from the next one, like, hey, jerks. <laughs> Sorry, what's up, idiots? Yeah, don't do that. That's not a, that's not a good way to come back at just, all. Just trying to keep it keep it fresh a little bit here. So people like that. No, 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 <laughs> go back to rut. Rut was way nicer. Rut, rut worked better for job security. <laughs> hey, fools, what's up? Hey, uh, fools. You could just start like a segment yelling Raka. <laughs> is that too what esoteric a joke that's too I was that's say, too that narrow. was a great pastor joke that was a good <laughs> pastor joke uh at religion news before we get back to normal we need to grieve and pray uh this good article written by bishop scott jones but before we do that i would love to hear a little bit about our friends at thrivent let me tell you some things about thrivent brian did you know i'm a thrivent member were you aware of I that have, i've heard i was aware yes man I could not encourage you enough. I won't mention who was I was with before Thriven. I don't think I'm allowed to do that, but Thriven has exceeded expectations. They're a wonderful Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for more than 100 years. They also have just a really great kind of bedrock of Christian ethos, which when it comes to my money was really, really important. Also, though, if you're looking for a career change, and I know a bunch of you probably are, you can go to Thriven.com slash careers and learn more about opportunities there. Plus, Fully in fashion, then Thriven has been providing all sorts of webinars for free for helping navigate this pandemic and this quarantine and stress and leadership and crisis and all those things. Uh, we've been posting a lot of that to our Facebook page. But you can also go to Thriven.com to learn more or to their Facebook page. Again, totally for free. I highly recommend you check them out. I do appreciate that we're able to uh, discuss them on a daily basis. It's an organization you and I both believe in, right? Like yeah, we right. could genuinely say good organization, get connected with them uh, with a clear conscience, right? And not just because yeah, it's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah. It is kind of nice. Not that any of our past ones didn't fit that easy either, but oh, this boy. One is nice. oh, boy. this one is nice to be able to go, you know what? We're going to continue to push them because uh, we believe in them. So uh, at religion news, Bishop Scott Jones uh, wrote an article entitled, an opinion piece entitled, Before We Get Back to Normal, We Need to Grieve and Pray. Let me just read some of this for us. Like many pastors and church leaders around the world, I've been grieving the damage caused by COVID-19. People have died. People have suffered physically. Jobs have been lost. The economy has been disrupted. And church has been halted in many places. Yet God is at work. We're mindful of the promise in Paul's letter to the Romans. We know that all things work together for good, Uh, For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, which is why I have discouraged United Methodists from holding in-person worship during the month of May. Uh, He's a bishop in United Methodist Church. Uh, And why I am not afraid to advocate for continued online church for the foreseeable future. The Lord is moving in ways many of us have not experienced in our lifetime. And this movement will not stop because we're worshiping from home. In fact, I think it may increase. I have drawn inspiration, he writes, on how to respond for this crisis from the book of Nehemiah. When we learned about the deplorable state of Jerusalem, when he learned about the deplorable state of Jerusalem, this exiled prophet living in the Persian capital did not get to work right away. Instead, he sat, uh, he stopped, he sat down and he wept. He cried and he mourned for the loss and he did so openly. Hmm. This is a critical reminder for church leaders that compassion should always precede action. Yes, there is a lot to do during COVID-19 to make sure everyone is physically and spiritually well, but we can't neglect people's experiences of pain. There have been many, there have been family deaths. People are isolated and lonely. Others are worried about money and are food insecure. These individuals need to know that not only do their leaders see their hurt, but they feel it. Grieving is not only purposeful for showing compassion to our congregations, 
It also helps us reorient our hearts to depend on God rather than ourselves. Therefore, mourning what we have lost amid COVID-19 is a critical step before reopening the doors of our churches. I'll stop there. Uh, what are your thoughts on taking time to grieve and pray? Uh, because I think a lot of us, yourself, myself, our first move is probably, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? What do we have to do? And he's saying we cannot miss the step of mourning what's been lost, grieving for the people uh, who have suffered. Uh, I find this to be a helpful reminder because I don't naturally pause to mourn and to think and to grieve. Well, yeah. Why do you think that is? You've mentioned that before on the show. Uh, one is it's uncomfortable, but two, I mm. think uh, I tend to just move towards what do we do? Like, what's the next, like, what's you and I have talked a lot about, even when it comes to like listening to our show, like listening back, you tend to listen back. I'm always like, why would you listen back? Like, let's just worry about tomorrow's and tomorrow's I'm kind of a, to a detriment, I think in my own life, I tend to be uh future focused, like what's next, what's next. Um, and so it's that. And, you know, sometimes uh, if I'm truthful, it's what is grieving and mourning really going to accomplish? And I know that that's uh, a wrong statement because you even see it in this article. But I think there's some of that. Like what's 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 mourning over what's happened really going to accomplish? Let's get to the work that's before us. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. A couple of things that I find interesting about the story of Nehemiah, too, is like one. Right, he was a cupbearer. Isn't that right? Like he was yeah. he was in a pretty a pretty baller position. So he'd never he'd never been to this city that he was like lamenting over, which is interesting. Like he feels this deep connection to his history. Right. To like the people it represented. The other thing, though, that's interesting to me is that the text mentions how he he fasted and prayed. It doesn't say that he whined. It said that he, he fasted and prayed, which is way beyond just uh, an emotion, but it's also not just a flash in the pan. It was like this abiding concern for the hurts and struggles of, of people around him. And I, I, I also find it interesting, like, I don't know, I forget the specifics, but if I remember the text correctly, he, he actually prayed for like four months and mm -hmm. the work of rebuilding the wall took like, what was it? 52 days. Yeah, it sounds right. Like a 52-day project had a four-month foundation of prayer. Like that to mm -hmm. me is so opposite of how I tend to order my life and my days and my ministry and my energy. It's like his – and again, I, I'm, I'm with you. Like you know, I do go back and listen to the show probably too much. <laughs> but I also tend to sort of be like, all right, what's the next thing? What's the next skill? What's the next yeah. project? What's the next – like I like dreaming stuff up. I like being creative. I like solving problems. Uh, I know a lot of people listening probably feel the same way. The idea of pausing for four months to lament and grieve and pray and fast. Um, I don't know. I, I think of that story and I think, man, sometimes I need to confess for just being too busy. I have a lot of other things to yes. crowd out the stuff that really matters the most, right? And I think I think it's probably safe to say that the condition of our heart determines what we see, right? And if we're not actually allowing God to do the hard work of like chipping away in our heart stuff that isn't good, isn't right, that's going to affect the way that we look at the world. And and the irony there is that we, when we aren't looking at the world correctly, our solutions aren't going to be the types of solutions that bring God honor. So in our obsession to get to productivity, we sometimes are like doing more harm than good because yeah. we're not first like allowing God to really transform us. Yeah, it's, I find it so easy. Uh, I, I'll put it this way. I find it much easier to preach sermons about Sabbath rest and about, you know, uh, pausing, like taking serious time to pray 
uh, and to reflect. I find those a lot easier to talk about in sermons than to put into practice in my own life at times. And so, um, yeah, I, I think this guy makes a really good point about, uh, he ends it by saying this. He said, the church and its leaders must model compassion, prayer, and courage to a world in desperate need of hope. These present challenges are tough, and we've all experienced difficulties in varying degrees. We must prepare to live with this pandemic for months to come. At the same time, many congregations are discovering new ways of worshiping God, serving their communities, and being the church. We are never without hope, and the ability and necessity to minister is ever-present. God is at work through his church during this pandemic. I'll read that again. God is at work through Mm -hmm. his church during this pandemic. We serve a miracle working God who made a way, who made way for Nehemiah and is doing so today. That's written by Bishop Scott Jones. Uh, he, he's the bishop, resident bishop of the Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. We'll put that up, but that is up at our Facebook page. We'd encourage you to read it because I think it is a great reminder about slowing down, the need to mourn, the need to grieve, the need to pray. Uh, before then we jump into next steps and action. Roy, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.